0: everyone Dan Cassidy here welcome to top of the morning on the UBS market moves podcast channel as we begin a new week I am joined once again for the CIO strategy snapshot conversation by Jason Dreho the head of asset allocation Americas with the UBS chief investment office so Jason good morning to you hope you had a nice weekend welcome back to the forum here and looking forward to our conversation
1: yeah thank you Dan it's good to be here
0: so Jason as our listeners might recall last week the market's Were driven in part by a sharp rise in energy prices, uh, namely oil, as the war in Ukraine escalated and restrictions were announced against imports of Russian oil and energy products, including here in the U.S. We are hearing some positive developments, perhaps that a round of ceasefire talks are occurring today between Ukraine and Russia. So more to come there. But getting back to energy prices, I know, Jason, concerns are growing about stagflation and a a recession because of the rise in commodity prices. So how significant is this risk in the chief investment office's estimation, Jason?
1: Well, if you we think about it today versus just a month ago, uh, the risk has clearly risen, you know, because what we've dealt with or what we are dealing with right now is a inflationary shock, meaning it's going to be, you know, a hit to a growth because more money has to go towards spending on essentials like food and energy, which is less money to go to you know, discretionary spending. So that's going to be a negative on growth. It also means higher inflation and that could potentially also, you know, eat into the to real spending power, but also you know, leads to central banks potentially having a tighten policy you know, against an environment where otherwise they might be pausing because growth is slowing. Um, but I think we also need to put in sort of the recent moves in energy prices in context. Uh, there is a tendency for people to look at nominal prices and forget that they need to think about in terms of relative or, or real terms. So if you look at, you know, the national price of gas or the average price of gas across the country, Bloomberg has a metric and right now they'd say it's around four dollars and seventy cents. Uh so four dollars is sort of the psychological breakpoint. When it goes above that, people start to you know, you know, think it's getting real expensive. But we also had oil uh, or gas at four dollars and forty-three cents back in May of two thousand and eight. That was the last time it was kind of this elevated. Uh, but if we think about you know incomes today versus you know approximately fourteen years ago, they were fifty percent higher on a per capita basis. So, you know, the, the gas price is six percent higher. But you yeah, know, uh, average income prices are fifty percent higher. My point being is that our ability, and I think for most consumers to be able to absorb this uh despite the sort of the sticker shock is actually you know fairly solid and you know they've we've come out of this recession where households are in very good shape. uh the data that we've seen thus far in terms of you know spending like consumer behavior it's very early and very preliminary, but anecdotally you know consumer oriented companies are saying they're not seeing any real impact thus far. that certainly can change in the next couple of days or a couple of weeks, certainly. But as far you know, consumer spending has been quite resilient, there is some signs with lower income people you know, spending more, relatively more on on gas and food as opposed to other goods. So there is you know, some impact is what you'd expect, but on an aggregate basis, thus far there hasn't been a significant impact, which is important because the consumer is seventy percent of the economy. If they're holding up, then that would imply that you know the, the probability of recession is still you know, relatively contained. Uh, the other thing that when we think about sort of the, the risk of recession. If you take a normal economic cycle, as you go further along in the expansion, you know, you eliminate output gaps. You're running out sort of full capacity. There's lot. There's no real slack in the economy. That tends to be when you get higher inflation like we're experiencing now. There might be some sort of excesses in the economy. People have taken on more debt to spend or, or to build capacity in their businesses. Uh, then you have policy that starts to turn, you know, quite tight. And none of those conditions are really sort of in play right now. But normally you get sort of the, research, the risk of recessions that sort are of rising almost like in a continuous fashion as you get these you – know, as these uh, environment takes hold. Right now what's changed is more of a discontinuous or discrete jump all related to the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine that's caused commodity prices to surge. So whereas recession prediction models – you know, with, you know caveat they're, they're not perfect by any stretch – would have been saying the probability of a recession in the U.S. in the next 12 months would have been single digits a month ago now some of them might be like above twenty percent and other forecasters are around saying like it could be a one and third chance. The problem or the challenge of looking at that kind of data is it's you know, because it is discrete, it's very contingent on the outcome. A month from now, if the situation in Ukraine gets even worse and commodity prices are even higher, then maybe we're at a fifty percent chance the next year. But if things start to de escalate in some way or look like they could de escalate, then commodity prices could decline. So that probability of recession, you know, could go from you know, 30% right now to 50% or back down to 15%. So it's a very hard thing to sort of call because it really depends a lot right now on the outcomes of a, a particular situation in Ukraine that could go well or, or it could go much worse. And so I think that when we think about the risk of recession, you just have to sort of keep that in mind. Um, abstract from that, it's a low risk, but this is a you know situation where there's different events that could play out, you know, that could trigger recession much more likely.
0: Jason, thank you for the context and for outlining some avenues as to how this all might evolve from here. I have to imagine the Fed is monitoring energy prices, of course, the war in Ukraine, and the focus this week will be on the Fed. It is expected that the Fed will announce that 25 basis point rate hike on Wednesday. What else are you expecting from this upcoming meeting, Jason, and what might it take for the Fed to alter the trajectory of its hawkish policy course for 20 twenty twenty two when you take into account the fluidity and perhaps the economic impacts of the war in Ukraine.
1: Well the key thing to look for the uh, Fed aside from the twenty five basin point hike, which is almost a certain, is their guidance about what they're going to do not only this year but next year and beyond. So the, the dot plot that they have is the you know the median of like all the different FOMC members will say like how many hikes would they expect this year? Right now it's at two. This is likely to jump to say five or maybe six still probably less than the number of hikes that the market is pricing in right now, which is between six and seven hikes. But, you know, moving closer in that direction, uh, it would indicate probably, you know, two to three hikes next year. Uh, but where the real key, I think, to look for is ultimately how many hikes does the Fed think they have to raise or, or conduct in this cycle to cool the economy relative to the long-term view of, sort of the neutral Fed funds rate. And the neutral Fed funds rate is around, you know, 2.5%. If they're indicating that in this cycle they might have to hike above that to 2.75 or 3%, that would suggest they're willing to go into restrictive territory and cool the economy. If the dot plots, at least to 2024, don't sort of indicate that, it might suggest they believe either they don't have to go that far or they're not willing yet to kind of go that far given the uncertainties. Uh, and that leads into your kind of the second part of your question regarding what might cause the Fed to pull back, uh, at least relative to the, out, you know, the path I just outlined. They're very much in an inflation-fighting mode. From their perspective, they've hit the full employment part of their dual mandate. Now the price stability part is the one that's being challenged. So they can focus on uh, almost exclusively. In some way, their task right now is relatively straightforward. They just need to start hiking rates and also announce that they'll not begin a balance sheet reduction, but they say they're getting close to it, implying that you know in May they will give the details and starting probably at some point in June. So that that can get underway. The issue then really becomes that once we move into the second half this year, once they've hiked multiple times, the balance sheet is shrinking. They'll have a better sense of like where is inflation at that point in time and how far they have to go. So they may want to be a little bit vague, you know, in terms of their long term plans. But that's the key thing is to kind of watch for like what are they indicating as an is a signal for how aggressively and how seriously they are taking this problem versus you know, they need to kinda of normalize, but there's still a lot of uncertainty and they're not willing to be, you know, pre committed at this point in time to any particular policy. So that that's what I would look for the official commentary and then also the press conference that Paul would have to have after the uh, news is released.
0: Thank you, Jason, for helping us to manage expectations for Wednesday. I know on Thursday of this week, we'll be catching up with David Bianco on the How Should I Be Positioned podcast, and we can debrief a bit on what comes from Wednesday's statement as well as the press conference, which follows. Uh, switching gears a bit, I know there's been some negative news related to China in the past few days. Now, overnight, China announced lockdowns in Shen And severe restrictions in Shanghai, while Chinese stocks listed in the U.S. as ADRs were down 16% combined in Thursday and Friday. Uh, Just looking at Asian equities overnight, it looks like the Hang Seng closed lower by 6%, the Shanghai Composite closed lower by 2.6%. What's the near-term outlook here for China equities, Jason?
1: Uh, for the very short term, like meaning like, you know, the next couple of days or week, you know that the risk is, right at the moment, kind of skewed to the downside, and we saw what you just talked about in terms of the, the performance today in Asia is speaks to that. What's going on with the ADRs is that um, already there, you know, the companies are sort of essentially under watch. There is legislation in the US that was passed a couple of years ago. That will require any foreign company that's listed in the U.S. as an ADR to give greater transparency in terms of its ownership structure and the role of sort of government in its affairs. This applies to all uh, companies listed in the U.S., but principally the big goal with this legislation was to target you know, Chinese companies uh, and concerns about you know, Chinese government involvement in them in some capacity. Uh, if they don't comply, providing the necessary disclosure, they have to delist uh, from the U.S. market within three years. Uh, and so this has already been an issue for the past year. I think on late last week, the SEC put five companies on sort of essentially on watch regarding this. So it wasn't really new news, but it was a reminder to people that this is kind of an issue that they maybe had put on the back burner in in recent months, given what's going on in Ukraine and also just the overall inflation dynamic here in the U.S. Um, So that was sort of was what kind of I think you had a lot of uh, retail investors who are probably disproportionately represented in those who are participating in their own, you know, the ADRs. Uh, at this point, selling so a lot of it was just sort of de-risking, getting out of these stocks. So that exacerbated the news. Uh, on top of that, and as you alluded to, you know the news overnight regarding sort of lockdowns to deal with the uh, the Omicron wave, and you know say it wave in modest terms it's spreading in China. Well, again, we're kind of raised concerns about the economic impact and the hit to growth, but also kind of globally to the to supply chains. Uh, and then the, even the reports that they came out yesterday regarding. That you know, uh, Russia had asked China for some sort of military support, so a lot of headline risk. You know, when you add it all up, which means near term, I think that's going to lead to cautious investor sentiment. I think the reality that we face, uh, you know, in China is maybe not as bad as, as you know those numbers would suggest. Um, the The economic impact of the lockdowns will be probably relatively modest, you know, if there's lockdown for two weeks. And it's really that's the time frame they're looking at. The economic activity that's lost now tends to bounce back. So ultimately, you know, three months down the line, we're kind of at the same point where we would have ended up if this hadn't occurred. I think ports are not going to be locked down. So the global implications are relatively you know modest. If we think of the Chinese ADRs, they're down significantly really over the past couple of years. To the point where the valuations are starting to look crisis level, yet their earnings should still be you know, decently positive this year. So in a fundamental perspective, they're still attractive. But just this regulatory uncertainty, this delisting risk and the overall macro environment and investor caution right now suggests there could be some more near, you know, near-term downside. Uh, so that, that's the, you know, kind of the, the outlook. We did upgrade within APAC and emerging markets, China, to be most preferred. But sort of acknowledge that you know on a you know on a global basis there's still some of these, you know uncertainties regarding sort of the regulation, and and this is right now sort of you know proving to be the case. So again, on a medium-term you know view, still look optimistic on China equities overall. But I think in the very short term, this headline risk is going to probably weigh on them uh, until we get a little more clarity in terms of the, the ADRs, at least, and the lockdown implications.
0: So, Jason, as we bring this all together, taking into account the unknowns that exist across multiple spectrums that you've shared with us on the podcast this morning, what do these factors imply, Jason, for the market outlook, a near term and maybe through the balance of 2022? And with respect to portfolio positioning, what should investors be doing right now?
1: Well if you think of just the overall sort of market outlook in the very near term, uh, there's a possibility we can get some sort of stabilization. It's been a very you know choppy and volatile environment, um, but there may be some sort of you kind know, of a footing to hold. The reason I say that is, is a couple of factors. One, on the commodity front, which has really been driving sort of the, the more recent risk off sentiment, is that they're starting to prices have come down, but also just the day to day volatility is moderating. And you see once, you know, when Russia invaded Ukraine and the concerns about disruption to energy supplies other agricultural products, the initial knee-jerk reaction was to drive these prices higher. In many cases, they're down quite a bit from their peak, you know, even just early late last, or early last week. And now it's just sort of settled to a level where I think people are starting to kind of calibrate what is the appropriate price for some of these commodities. They could go higher, but I think in the near term, at least, uh, they've kind of stabilized. That helps provide some stability to the markets because now we can kind of calibrate what is the economic impact of these higher commodity prices? What does that mean for earnings, the macro environment, and so on and so forth? So I think that gives investors a little more clarity in terms of, you know, what situation they're dealing with. And that would help provide some stability. The second factor is investors have been in aggregate sort of basically de-risking, you know, reducing some of their equity exposure, uh, reducing leverage. You know, and we've seen this across different investor types, which means that, you know, some of the, the de-risking that would have you know, could have taken place when there's negative news that's already occurred, and that might at least curtail some of the more downside risk that, that it was just if there's any kind of headline risk because people have already kind of you know, kind of cleaned up their positioning. The other thing is we've seen uh, uh, the rates, you know, kind of the 10-year treasury, it declined left when the Ukraine war began, fell below 1.7%. Now it's back over 2%, basically where we were you know, a few weeks ago. I think this is sort of pricing and now what I discussed earlier regarding what the Fed could have announced. So in the very short term, you know, rates you know are probably reaching a bit of a near term top, kind of the top end of the range we think they'll trade at, again as a headwind for risk assets, higher rates, if that sort of you know pauses for for the time being then again should provide some stability for the markets. So I'd say it's more of a breather for the moment, uh, meaning like in the next you know, you know, few weeks, you know, next month or two. Uh if we think about the medium term outlook, we still remain you know, relatively you know constructive in terms of the economic environment, certainly within the US. Uh, the hit to growth that we're looking at might take us back down to sort of the long-term potential growth rate of 2% uh, as opposed to the 3% or 4% we were looking at before. And we could still sort of trend in that direction depending on how soon commodity prices come down. So it's still a relatively positive or solid economic environment in the U.S. Uh underneath should still be you know, relatively you know, solid. But there is these kind of late cycle concerns. And this is kind of one of the reasons why, you know, we downgraded equities from the most preferred to neutral. That's not a negative outlook. We just don't expect them to outperform in the way they have been outperformed for the past couple of years. So just to, the guidance would be kind of stay relatively close to home in terms of your long term strategic benchmark when it comes to asset allocation. Uh, when I think of also just the kind of the rescue in the very short term. There's certainly more risks that things could get worse if the situation in Ukraine escalates in some in some way, or just further disruptions in commodity prices. On the flip side, I think people would be just cautious about seeing a lot of move higher in equity markets because of you know the the situation in Ukraine. It just could linger until we get real clarity on this being sort of a de-escalation. I think people are concerned, and even if that materializes. Well, now we have this inflation problem where the central banks have to deal with it, and it's unclear at this point in time just how aggressive they might have to be to kind of bring that inflation down. So, until we get both kind of clarity on both the situa- situations, inflation and Ukraine, and those are you know, tied together to some extent, I think moving higher back to kind of the highs we had earlier this year, um, you know, might take a long time. It could happen later this year, but I think not in the next in a quarter or two. Uh, so, kind of just thinking about a couple other positioning, or, you know, views. We've liked commodities as a bit of a geopolitical risk hedge, uh, and it worked well given how much they pulled back. This wouldn't be a bad sort of reentry point, more thinking as a as a hedge uh in terms of disruptions to commodity supplies, but also if things de escalate and global economy sort of reaccelerates, you know, demand for commodities could also pick up. So I think they're they're still kind of attractive at the current levels given how much they pulled back over the past you know, three or four days. Um and the move higher in rates uh, has also had some disruptions in credit markets, so things are starting to look like they could become a little more attractive whether in, in, the, in the fixed income space and in the credit space. Uh, you know, for example, investment grade corporate credit, it's least preferred for us, um, but now it's getting to point given how much spreads have widened, it's starting to look a little attractive. So I think you know, just thinking about areas that have been most disrupted by the, the sell-off, there are some areas that have uh, are now kind of creating at least intriguing opportunities that investors should start to investigate. Um, if not yet quite put onto the portfolios. And with that, I'll stop there.
0: Well, uh, Jason, very helpful conversation to begin the week. Thank you for joining us here on the CIO Strategy Snapshot to take inventory of some key risk considerations, sharing with us CIO's near- and longer-term market outlook and for the guidance when it comes to asset allocation. As mentioned, looking forward to our conversation with David Bianco from DWS coming up on Thursday of this week and for hearing some thoughts and takeaways from the Fed. In the meantime, Jason, wish you a nice week ahead, and we'll catch up in a few days.
1: Okay, thank you, Dan. Have a great week.
0: Thank you, Jason. And again, today we've been joined by Jason Dreho, the Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. As a reminder to our clients and our listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us.